The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. The book of Revelation. So let's go ahead and look at the first eight verses. Follow along with me as I read, and here's what John the Apostle wrote. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the prologue or the formal introduction to this great book given to us by John the Apostle probably writing around 96 A.D., we believe, about five years after he wrote the Gospel of John that we just went through. The difference is is that John is a prisoner in exile, probably when he's writing this under Domitian, the evil, wicked Roman ruler. Reliable history tells us that after Domitian died in around 96 A.D., that John was allowed to go back to Ephesus, where he came from. Reliable history and also incidents in the New Testament tell us that John the Apostle probably left the area of Jerusalem in the 60s, sometime around when John or uh, Peter the Apostle and Paul the Apostle both were martyred or executed. And then sometime close to that, he ended up going to Asia Minor, where the book of Revelation takes place. And we believe that John the Apostle spent about three decades, 30 years in the area of Asia Minor, being an elder and a ruler and a pastor, shepherd to these churches and any other churches that were in that Asia Minor. So he had a long history here in Asia Minor in the churches there. They were precious to his heart. He knew these people personally. And he lived, outlived all the other apostles. All of them were murdered, executed for being Christians. John was not, although he spent some time in prison for being a believer. And so that's kind of the background of John the Apostle when he wrote this at the end of his life. There are many parallels. It's kind of interesting between uh, Revelation and the book of Daniel, as Tim mentioned earlier, and even between the authors, Daniel and John. Daniel was probably in his 90s or older when he wrote much of the book of Daniel, and the same is true of John the Apostle. Uh, Much of the content of the book of Daniel was given in visions and dreams, as is the book of Revelation. Much of the content and uh, information of the book of Daniel is about the end times, as is the book of Revelation. 
And the difference is, is Daniel was writing about these things before Christ's coming. And another difference is Daniel wasn't allowed to understand everything or finish the story. And he was troubled by that and then many times frustrated. He'd have this amazing prophecy, couldn't, didn't understand all the details, and he wanted to know what these things meant. Many times he knew a lot of the details and sometimes he wasn't allowed to know it. Seal it up. Seal it up till the end time. And then 500 and almost 600 years later, God gave that great privilege to John the Apostle to open it up and finish Daniel's story. So those books are complementary. We're going to see that as we go through. I take uh, verses 1 through 8 as our introduction to the book of Revelation. And I just pulled out four points. I can't really outline it. There's no technical outline in the first eight verses. But just main points or themes I wanted to highlight, the four that I came up with, really all focusing on Jesus Christ because that's what the book of Revelation is about. That's why I don't understand Christians who say, why are you reading the book of Revelation? Why are you preaching on the book of Revelation? Why study the book of Revelation? What practicality or relevance is there? Well, it's only about Jesus Christ, Lord of the church. How much more practical can you get? There is no greater reason. So that's why all four of my themes I want to accentuate and highlight all have to do with Jesus Christ and His glory. Just about every chapter is about the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. It's very exciting. And it's a different Jesus than we saw in the Gospel of John. I mentioned that last week. It is Christ unveiled in resurrected, majestic, all-authoritative glory. He is the sovereign Lord. That's the theme of Revelation. So let's go ahead and look at the first of our four points as we summarize it. The first is in verses 1 and 2. And that is the revealer of Revelation. Who gave us the book of Revelation? Who was the author? Well, on a human level, it's John. As a matter of fact, it's John the Apostle. Some people say that evolution is true. That as time goes by, things get better and more highly developed. And they even apply it to different areas and disciplines of human life, not just biology. But in sociology and economics, supposedly we're evolving and developing and getting better and getting. And in the academic world, that means we're getting smarter, supposedly. I would say just the opposite is true. I don't believe in evolution. I believe in de-evolution. Things are falling apart. The second law of thermodynamics. And people are getting stupider over time. That's the theory I have. Stupider. And the reason I know that is because as a theologian, I look at church history, 2,000 years of it, and I look at what... Bible teachers and Bible scholars say about the Bible in the last 150 years as opposed to the first 1700 years, I'd say, yes, we are getting stupider because all these so-called academics who are supposed to be smarter and more advanced and highly technologically uh, astute and whatever else are undermining the Bible with their observations. All that to summarize that it is not uncommon in the evangelical world today for many so-called scholars and experts on the book of Revelation to just totally undermine it. One of the ways they do that commonly is to say, well, this guy in John, verse 1, the end of verse 1, and this guy John at chapter uh, 1, verse 4, and this guy named John in chapter 22, verse 8, that's not John the Apostle. Oh, really? So that's pretty much what modern-day evangelical scholarship tells us. This is not John. This is some other guy. Lived much later. Elder John, whoever he was. It wasn't John the Apostle. And for 1,700 years, church history has said, no, it's John the Apostle. Unanimously, the early church said that. Unanimously, it was John the Apostle. I think that John the Apostle, when he finished writing this, believed he was the author of this book. That's just my personal opinion. Some of you might not even be aware of that, that that's being undermined, but that's just so typical uh, of stuff out. So be aware of it. So, no, it's John the Apostle. 
He was an apostle of Christ. And the reason this is important is because we have a first-hand account of somebody who knew Jesus, was an eyewitness. wasn't just a human who was an eyewitness and friend of Jesus. He was an apostle, meaning he was formally called by God to write the New Testament. And its inerrancy and clarity and authority was guaranteed by God by virtue of his office as an apostle and also by virtue of the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of writing Scripture. God commissioned apostles to write Scripture and guaranteed it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God Himself so that the end result, the byproduct, the very written Scriptures, the grafe, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, says that the writings are inspired of God. Literally, came from the words or words that came from the very mouth of God. That's what inspiration means. That's why this is so important. It is reliable. It is authoritative. You can count on it. It is not fiction. It is not theory. It is not allegory. It's from God. So on a human level, the revealer of this information is somebody who was called in his apostle, led by the Spirit, a friend of Jesus, an eyewitness of what happened, and he wrote it down, and it is reliable. That's the human level. That's the human author. But there's more than a human author to this, and that's the beauty and the uniqueness of Scripture. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul. But that's not the whole story. Paul and God wrote it. God wrote Scripture. And that's also true of Revelation. So look at the verse first. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him. God the Father. Where did Revelation come from? All 22 chapters. It came from God the Father. He is the origin. He is the author of Revelation. God the Father. It doesn't stop there. God the Father gave it to Jesus. That's what it says. Verse 1. Who wrote Revelation? Jesus did. And God the Father. Which God the Father gave to Jesus to show to His bondservant John, the Apostle, who faithfully wrote it down as the Holy Spirit was compelling him to do so. So the Holy Spirit also wrote Scripture. The Trinity did. To show to His bondservants, believers, Christians, God wants us to know this information. That's another reason to study uh, the book of Revelation because God says He wants us to know it because that's what it says in verse 1. We are His bondservants. He wants us to know this stuff. The things which must certainly or shortly take place. And He sent and communicated all this information, all 22 chapters, by His angel. Through an angel. Through heavenly agency. An angel of God. That's how this was communicated. How does that work? I don't know. It's a miracle of God, but it's guaranteed. That's what angels do. They're helpers. They're ministers of God and they do His bidding. They do what He tells them to do. And somehow the angels were involved in helping John the Apostle get this vision and write it down. As a matter of fact, we're going to see angels all over the book of Revelation. They are everywhere. They're almost in every chapter. Angels doing this and angels doing that. And you can see them behind the scenes doing their work for God because that's what they do. They serve Him night and day ceaselessly. And so the veil is pulled away and we see an angelic ministry going on like Never seen before. It's exciting. Angels are real. The spirit world is real. And it's run by God. So that's how this information was communicated. Through an angel to John. His bondservant John. Literally his slave John. That's how John viewed himself. I am a slave of Christ. None other. A humble man. The revelation. The revealer given by John. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but just the word revelation, very beginning, not, not plural, it's the revelation, singular, from that word apocalypsis, which means to unveil, or really a disclosure with specific emphasis on new information. 
John is mostly giving us information that had never been revealed in the history of the world to this degree. This is new information. It is an unveiling. This is privileged information. Oh, how much the Apostle Paul and Peter would have loved to have this information that John is being given when they were alive. So John was given this privileged information. And this unveiling, what is the unveiling? It is of Jesus Christ. It is of the glory and the person of Jesus Christ as He is seen and unveiled as the majestic One, the glorified One, the risen Christ like no one has ever seen in the history of the world prior to this book being written. All that these churches in Asia Minor had were the Gospels and the picture of Jesus in His humiliation, the suffering servant. Yes, the One who rose from the dead, but for the most part, all the biographical information about Him was confined to His earthly ministry and now they are just, boom, unveiled and they see Christ in His majestic glory. Very encouraging for these people. Many of these churches written in this area were undergoing persecution from the world. They needed some encouragement. They needed their faith to be bolstered and what can bolster the faith more than anything is the faith more than anything is Jesus Christ in His glory because He is their personal sovereign Lord. He is in charge. That's the point. This book is about Jesus Christ and Him being in charge. The Sovereign One. So we're going to see that. And that theme is developed all throughout. The revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in His glory. Uh, it says at the middle of the verse, the things which must shortly take place. Shortly take place. The word is very specific in the Greek. It just means that it's, it's imminent. These events are imminent. And some people knock that and say, well... And they read chapter 16. Hey, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, a third of the oceans haven't turned to blood yet. Uh, the moon and the stars, they're not falling to earth yet. That hasn't happened. This has been going on. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. That's not soon. That's not immediate. Actually, the emphasis on the Greek word is that it's imminent. It could happen at any time. When it does, it's going to happen quickly. That is the emphasis of the word. But I would also posit that, yeah, it is happening. It, it's already in play. Chapters uh, 6 through 18 haven't happened yet. 6 through 22 hasn't happened yet. But what has happened yet and has been going on for 2,000 years is chapters 2 through 3. That has been going on because that's in reference to the church, the churches of Jesus Christ. We are in the church age. So that is going on. And it did commence immediately with the words of Jesus. And after God has accomplished everything during the church age with His bride, then definitely chapter 6 is going to kick in just as God has planned. And when it does, it's going to be imminent. It is going to be quick. It is going to be rapid, immediate. Succession of events just as God has planned. Another important thing to keep in mind as we go through Revelation has to do with the, the, the nature or the genre of the book. And that is in uh, verse 1 in the middle. It says that God gave this information. He sent and communicated it. In other words, that's how He gave it. He didn't dictate it verbally to John and John's Writing it down on a pad. It didn't happen that way. For the most part, much of the information that God gave to John, it was communicated. Literally, the Greek word is semeon, which means sign is what it means. He signed it. Sign language. This is spiritual, prophetic sign language. Literally. Semeon, that's one of John's favorite words. He used it in the Gospel of John every time he referred to a miracle. A miracle was a picture. A miracle pointed to something. A miracle pointed to literal truth. And that's how this book was communicated, through signs, through sign language. Do people who maybe can't hear well, they're hearing impaired, or maybe they're deaf. One of my best friends growing up, his dad was deaf. So 
I saw a lot of this all the time. I was in their house all the time and sign language going on all the time. And I learned a little bit and learned enough to communicate to his dad. And just because I was communicating in sign language didn't mean we weren't saying literal things. As a matter of fact, most of what we were saying was literal. We literally meant it. So revelation is to be taken literally. There's literal truth God wants to communicate, but he does it uniquely through sign language. We're going to see that as we go through. And I said last week that many times when John uses an image or a metaphor or a vision or something uh, not in literal words, a symbol, if you will, many times he explains what that symbol is so we're not left scratching our head. Hmm, I wonder what this means. And many times, if we're reading through Revelation and there is no explanation, then you know what you should do? You should probably take it literally. You should probably take that. That would be the first thing to do. Take it literally. That's why we're going to get to Revelation chapter 20, and it says a thousand years six times. A thousand years six. Christ will reign on the earth a thousand years. And there's nothing in verses one through six that says this is a metaphor, a symbol, non-literal, an allegory. Therefore, then why conclude it's symbolic and not literal? Jesus rose after three days. We don't question the literal literal aspect of three days. And there's nothing in the text to say otherwise. That's why when I get to Revelation 20, I take it literally. So that's a good practice of hermeneutics and how to approach the Bible. So we'll continue to do that, keeping in mind that God did use sign language many times, and thankfully, uh, He gives us tools to interpret it properly. Uh, John goes on, uh, verse 2, He bore witness to the Word of God. This is a legal term. He was... He's giving legal testimony or testimony that you can count on. He got the Word of God directly from Jesus Himself. Usually this phrase refers to somebody who has direct revelation from God. That is a privilege we don't have today. There are no people today going around that receive direct revelation from God either through dreams or visions. I know there are people who are and they claim that they do and they write books about it and say they're a prophet of God and they're seeing visions. Heard about it this week. Some guy actually got it in my email. Introducing himself, he's a pastor, he got a vision from God, and God told him this and do this and do this, and therefore he wants me to do this. Thinking, no, no, God didn't speak to you and say all that. God speaks to us today through His Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Very clear. Scripture is sufficient. It's God's last Word until the next event on His chronological prophetic calendar. His Word is sufficient. Jude, verse 3. But John had a great privilege to speak supernatural, divine, prophetic revelation on behalf of God. He does it as a witness. He bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Uh, let's go on to point number two. So that's the revealer of revelation. That is John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, a reliable source. Point number two is that the re there's a reward in reading revelation. A re we talked about this a little bit last week. A reward, a reward in reading revelation hearing it and obeying it. Being a doer of the Word, as James chapter 1 says. Not a hearer only, right? Because otherwise, if you're just a hearer, then you are a hypocrite. You've got to be a hearer and a doer of the Word. But there's this great blessing. So let's look at the blessing. Uh, the reward of revelation. Blessing from the Word of Christ. Verse 3. Blessed is the One. And... Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount when He gave all those blessings. Blessed if you do this. Blessed if you're like this. You will be blessed by God. Do you want to put yourself in a blessing? A position of being blessed by God? I do. Do you want to put yourself under the umbrella of God's blessing? 
Well, if you want to, there are specific things you can do. It is guaranteed by God. Put yourself under the umbrella. It's like going under the fountain or the waterfall to be refreshed and to be filled. All you got to do is position yourself and move yourself into that position. Doing what God said to do. Putting yourself in a position to be blessed by God. And that's the implication of verse 3. We can do that as believers. We can deprive ourselves of God's blessing. We can put ourselves in a position to be blessed by God. What's the blessing? Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, revelation, and the ones who heed or obey the things which are written in it for the time is near. We talked about how this verse tells us that Revelation is a book worthy of study because it is a practical book. Apparently it has stuff in it that we are supposed to obey and implement in our life. So it's not all just ethereal head knowledge or some would tell us it's all history. It already happened. That's very common today. No, it hasn't. There's stuff in here we need to heed and obey. There's ethical implications here. There is morality in this book to be applied to our life. And if we do, we will be blessed by God. I, I want blessing. Man, I need blessing. Well, how do we do it, Lord? Blessed is the one who reads this book. John specifically, by the way, this is different than today and what conjures up in our mind. Because when you're thinking, when you hear, blessed is the one who reads this book, you're probably thinking, oh yeah, I need to read one of my 17 Bibles that I own at home and listen to my iPod that I have in the car of the Bible and on and on it goes. That is not what John was talking about. Because in John's day in 96 AD when they didn't have a printing press and Christians were being persecuted and writing stuff down as Scripture was valuable stuff like scrolls and animal skins, it was rare. So it was customary in the days of John who grew up probably in a Jewish synagogue, the only one that had sacred written Scripture was the rabbi, the designated rabbi of that synagogue. And that's what this is referring to. The one who reads. Who's the one reading? Well, in John's day, it was the guy that had the Scripture. And at these churches, it was probably one guy at the church of Ephesus who had sacred privilege and access to the Word of God to read it. And that was an incredible stewardship. The faithful reader and caretaker of written Scripture. And he probably didn't have the whole Bible either. He didn't have the ESV in his possession. All he had maybe was just one scroll. Maybe all he possessed was this one letter of Revelation. Maybe he had one Gospel and a little bit of the Old Testament. That was very common. They didn't possess the whole thing necessarily. It was very rare. So they cherished it. We're, we're incredibly privileged today. And I'd say we are even spoiled, aren't we? I'm, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged in my 47 Bibles I own at home. I've only read them as frequently as I should. So when he's saying blessed is the one who reads, blessed is the one in your church who is the reader of Scripture, the caretaker of Scripture. That would be like here at GBF if uh, Mr. Kim, Sam Kim, chairman of our elder board, he was the caretaker of the Bible and he's the only one that had a copy. Boy, that would change things, wouldn't it? Number one, everybody would like Sam. Number two, they'd all want to go to his house as frequently as possible to hear the Word of God. And then when he stood up on Sundays to read the Word of God, how much more attentive would we be? We'd have to be careful hearers. Trying to catch every word. They weren't sitting around with Bibles in their laps following along because they didn't have any. That's why their memory was so important. Their, their minds were like a steel trap. They were trained in this discipline of being careful, deliberate hearers, trying to memorize it after they heard it. Man, that's hard. That was reality. That's what John was talking about. And that's why specifically the person who was the reader was blessed because of all his responsibilities. 
So blessed is the one who reads. But today, it does. You know, anybody that has the privilege of being a reader of Scripture, you will be blessed if you read it. You will also be blessed if you hear it. That means take it in, understand it, which is hard. You need to be a critical thinker, a thinker, a discerning thinker, examining all the other Scriptures as well to come up with the accurate interpretation, getting wise counsel from godly people who know the Word of God, who are gifted by God to the church, according to Ephesians 4.11, to teach us the Scriptures properly, surrounding yourself with good teachers, pushing away bad, deceptive teachers that are everywhere, being a good hearer. Boy, that's vitally important. If you're a good hearer, a discerning hearer, if you take 1 Thessalonians 5 literally and apply it to your life on a deliberate basis as a discipline of being a discerning person, examine everything carefully. That's what it says. And hold fast to that which is good. Shun every form of evil. Bad teaching, false teaching, heretical teaching is evil. As a matter of fact, it's the worst form of evil. Shun it. Have nothing to do with it. If you're a discerning learner of Scripture, God's going to bless you. He's going to bless you. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. Oh, and then that last part, uh, the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And we said last week, the genre of revelation is prophetic-inspired Scripture. It's not apocalyptic literature. It says it's prophecy two times in chapter 1. It says it's prophecy in chapter 22. Just like the Old Testament prophets. That's the genre. Of this prophecy. And finally, blessed is the one who reads, hears, and those who heed, those who obey what is in Revelation. So that's going to be our goal. It's going to be my goal as I go through. Okay, what do I need to obey in this passage? Today, at the end of the sermon today, as you're going home, leaving church, what in Revelation can I implement and obey? Lord Jesus, put me in a position of being blessed by You. Well, I'll give you one thing, in case you're having a hard time making it practical of what you can obey. I would start by obeying, by reading Revelation. Because that's what God says to do, right? Read it. Start there. And the blessing will just keep coming. And there's plenty of other things that we can obey uh, all the way through. So obey it. Heed the things. Do them. Be a doer of the Word. Don't be a hypocrite. The things which are written in this book. Why? For the time is near. There's a sense of urgency here. That should be the attitude of a Christian. The sense of urgency. Oh, I wanted to give you... Well, how can we be blessed by reading Revelation, hearing it, and then obeying? Well, I came up with some ideas to help you out. So here's the practical part. Here are ways that you can be blessed if you read Revelation and apply it to your life. This is just a few of the 57 I came up with. Here we go. How will you be blessed if you read and obey Revelation? You will think God's thoughts, not worldly thoughts. Wow, that's enough right there, right? Thinking on things that are true, Philippians 4. Man, if you just think, think on things that are true all the time, that will change your life. It will revolutionize your life. I guarantee you won't have anxiety anymore. You won't have fear anymore. Because you're only going to be thinking on truth. It's hard to do, isn't it? Have self-control over our minds. So if you read the Revelation and immerse yourself in it, and you're, anytime, anytime you're reading the Word of God and studying it, there's not room for anything else. Some of you say, well, I'm a multitasker. I guarantee you, you can't multitask when you're reading and, something, uh, reading and studying something. You can only do one thing at a time when it comes to reading something, studying it, and concentrating. You'll think God's thoughts. How else will you be blessed if you read Revelation? It will increase your faith. It will increase your faith. Every time you read the Word of God or the Bible, you hear it, you believe it, and you apply it to your life, God will increase your faith. He will help you grow in faith. He will help you mature. He will increase your faith. That is a tremendous, huge blessing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, 
Faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. That is the only way faith comes is through truth from the Word of God. So you'll be blessed because it will increase your faith. Also, if you read the Bible, I already said this, it will relieve your anxiety because anxiety comes from wrong thinking. If you're taking in the Word of God, applying it to your life, believing it, that will drown out, smother out anxiety in your life. Uh, if you're reading the Word of God, you'll also be blessed in Revelation because you will have a proper perspective of the future. There are competing views of the future and how the world's going to end in case you didn't know that. This tormented me as a child when I was growing up. I didn't grow up studying the Bible, reading the Bible, hearing biblical teaching, and I was being inundated and immersed with all kinds of frightening prospects of how the world was going to end imminently. Like World War III that was supposed to happen when I was growing up as a child, the nuclear holocaust that was supposed to happen, the movie that came out when I was a child and scared me to death was called The Day After. And the only thing that ever lived through the nuclear holocaust were the cockroaches, which I hate. But I literally was... Afraid. I had a fear of the future. You read Revelation, you're not going to have a fear of the future because you'll have a proper perspective of the future. There's all kinds of competing ideologies out there about how the world is going to end. Environmentalism. That's a religion telling us how the world's going to end. If you don't do this, and if you don't do this, and if you drive this kind of car, then the whole world is going to be without water in 15 years. No, it's not. I know how the world is going to end, and it's not going to end that way. The world's going to end with global warming. No, it's not. I've read Revelation. I know how it's going to end. So this will change your perspective of the future. That's huge. We live in light of the future as Christians. Uh, another thing of how Revelation will bless you if you read it, uh, it will actually give you a proper perspective of what Jesus is really like. Everybody in the world believes in Jesus. Everybody has an opinion of Jesus. Boy, but if you read Revelation and see what He's really like, most people would be shocked. I don't believe that, or I never heard of that, or I can't believe that. Because the, the, the Jesus you see in Revelation is a holy Jesus. It is a Jesus who is judge. It is a Jesus who punishes sin. He's a loving Jesus. He's a merciful Savior. But He's also a holy God who punishes sin. Like these people that try to tell us they're totally opposed to capital punishment and war at any time. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. What about Jesus in Revelation 19 when He comes out of the sky, He returns to earth, and He has a sword, a double-edged sword, coming out of His mouth by which He will smite the nations. Splattering their blood all over. It splatters all over Him. King of kings and Lord of lords. It will give you a proper perspective of your dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The loving One and, yes, the Holy One. And it will still holiness in your life, which will also be to your good, and God will bless you as a result. How about one more? Um, if you read Revelation, it will instill in you a hope and motivation to live just one day more. I'm pretty sure that just about, just about everybody in here has it better than many of the Christians of Asia Minor did when John was writing to them. We know this, especially when we get to the church of Smyrna that was the persecuted church. People were getting slaughtered and killed for their faith in Smyrna. That's actually happening around the world right now. There are Christians undergoing physical persecution from satanic regimes around the world even today. But if you read Revelation, if you are a persecuted Christian, or if you're just a Christian right now and you're having hard times, you're having trials, you're having because our struggles are real. Just because you're not being persecuted by a tyrant doesn't mean you're not undergoing real trials. We do. Shouldn't minimize those at all. We have real struggles. 
Real battles. We need hope. That's what we need. We need hope. You read Revelation, you're going to get hope because that's why John wrote it to these seven churches to give them hope, to remind them, man, this life is hard. This life is a trial. This life is painful. This life is not my home. And they were able to see the future, how in the end Jesus is victorious. The kingdom of God reigns and endures forever. And if you are a believer, you get to be a part of that kingdom. That is the good news. That's the reason to persevere and go one day more. That's why Revelation was written. That's a lot of blessings, isn't it? And that's why we should read Revelation. Let's go on uh, to the third point, the recipients of Revelation. That is the seven churches of Christ. We'll get more into detail in chapters 2 and 3 on this so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time. But John says in verse 4, John, the apostle to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. He chose seven. There were more than seven churches, but he chose seven for divine purposes. Really only known in the mind of God. The seven churches that are in Asia or Asia Minor. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. So John is writing to fellow believers, acknowledging what they all have in common. They are all a part of the church because of the triune God. The triune God is referenced there in verses 4 and 5 the same way the Apostle Paul did when he wrote epistles all the time. Grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. This was a Christian formula of greeting to fellow believers. The first reference there is to God the Father, calling Him, this is really like a proper name for God, Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God's name. That's God the Father's name. Him who is, the ever-present one. That's what that means. Him who was, He's always been. He's eternal, eternity past. Who is and who is to come. The one who will be, that's present tense, in the future. Past, present, and future. God the Father is an eternal being, just like Micah 5.2 says. Similar phrase. That's what it's saying. God the Father from the eternal one who is God the Father and also from the, the Holy Spirit is the reference at the end of verse 4, calling Him the seven spirits who are before His throne. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Well, one clue is in uh, Revelation chapter 4 where John has a vision and he sees somebody sitting on the throne in John chapter 4 and he sees God who is on the throne and also before the throne there are angels. And then verse 5 of chapter 4 says, And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder up in heaven. And there were seven lamps of burning fire before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit. Also, if you knew the book of Zechariah and you read Zechariah chapter 4, and if you knew that Zechariah chapter 4 and the events of it coincide with the events going on in the book of Revelation at the end of the time, this is one of the first references where John makes use of the Old Testament. This is a reference right out of the Old Testament referring to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God. That's the imagery from Zechariah chapter 4, the Holy Spirit. If you don't know your Old, if you don't know your Old Testament, you're going to miss a lot in Revelation. It is built on the Old Testament, over 400 different references and allusions right out of the Old Testament. So we've got to stay on top of it. But that is the Spirit. So it's God the Father, God the Spirit, and then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and point number 4. Uh, the ruler of Revelation, Jesus, Alpha, and Omega. Actually, he's called many things here. Uh, this is amazing. Verses 5 through 8, there are two parts that emphasize who Jesus is, but also emphasize what Jesus has done on our behalf. So first we'll look at who Jesus is. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And the firstborn of the dead. Those are specific references out of Psalm 89. 
Actually, the phrase there in, in verse 5, those three phrases, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth all come directly from Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is a psalm about the seed of David who would reign as king and rule over an eternal kingdom. And what this is saying is Jesus is the son of David, the seed of David, the rightful heir to fulfill the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, of the coming Messiah who would reign on David's throne for all eternity and usher in the kingdom of God that exists right now in the spiritual realm and will be inaugurated literally on earth, physically for 1,000 years. On earth, so says Revelation 5.10. On earth is what it says. Not in heaven, not in space, on earth. Revelation 5.10. Daniel chapter 7. Zechariah 12. On earth. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. On earth. All of which is an answer to Jesus' most basic prayer when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is King of earth. There is the kingdom of God. It goes on right now. But it's in the spiritual realm. It is where God and Jesus are. They are absent from us. Someday they will be in our presence on earth. And Jesus' prayer will finally be answered. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the promise is that believers, that saints, that Christians will get to reign with Christ on earth as His vice-regent. Man, I am looking forward to that day. Vice-regent Clifford. Prince Clifford. Or whatever. Fill in the blank. Put your name in there. Ruling with a rod of iron. That's awesome. But that's what Psalm 89 is talking about. And those are the three titles given to Jesus Christ, the rightful heir to rule the kingdom that is coming. It exists right now in the spiritual realm. It will exist physically and tangibly in the future. Then there are things that Jesus has done for us. Verse 6. Actually, it begins at the end of verse 5. It says, To Him, that's Jesus, who loves us, present tense, participle, present tense in the Greek, continual, ongoing, nonstop. If you're a Christian, will Jesus ever stop loving you? No. Man, that's a great truth. Here it is, 2,000 years later, and it says, Who loves us. Jesus loves you if you're a Christian, if you're a believer. He loves you. To the one who loves us, present tense, ongoing. Is he disappointed when we sin? Yes. Is he grieved? Yes. Does he chasten us? Yes. Does he love us continually? So that's what he's done for us. He loves us. That's our state of being, our status before him. He loves us. We love him. Not only that, what else did he do for us? He loves us and released us. Not present tense. Aorist tense, a one-time past action already done, totally completed. He died on the cross and rose again from the dead to accomplish salvation for His own. It is secure. It's a done deal. It is finished. That's what Jesus said. That's what released means. Released us from what? Our sins. How many? All of them. Do I still commit sin? Yes, I do. I battle with sin daily. When I get to heaven and I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and He has that huge book Accounting for everything I've done in the history of my life. That should catalog all of my sins. If I'm a believer and he opens it up, what's going to be there? Nothing. Blank. Wiped clean. Zero. All of my sins. Wiped out and totally forgiven in Jesus Christ. Well, somebody needs to, you need to get punished for your sin. I did get punished. I got punished when Jesus got punished on my behalf. It's the gospel. Isn't that glorious? Every sin wiped clean. Maybe the pages won't be white. Maybe they will be blood-stained from Jesus Himself because of what He did on our behalf. What a great truth. Who Jesus is and what He did for us. He loves us continually. 
He released us from our sin. All of them, Christian. How did He do it? By His blood. By His death. By His willful, substitutionary, vicarious death and resurrection according to plan. Not only that, look at the benefits. There are perks galore. Verse 6, And He has made us, God has made us, actually Jesus has made us, a kingdom of priests, says one translation. Or this translation, He has made us a kingdom and priests. This is a beautiful balance and a great truth. Kingdom, that speaks of a corporate entity. When you're a Christian, you are adopted into a kingdom, a corporate reality, a corporate entity with a whole bunch of individuals. Which is encouraging. There is solidarity there. There is protection there. There is unity there. There is comfort and encouragement in a group, isn't there? That's the idea. But it's not just a corporate reality of being a Christian. There's also individuality in terms of blessing. So He's made you a kingdom, but He's also made you as a Christian priests. So God has made us into a kingdom, the corporate part, but also the individual aspect. He's made every single believer a priest. You can't get any more precious in terms of individuality and individual privilege than this to be a priest. Because in the Old Testament, the highest office in the land was a priest. And they were specifically selected and they had special duties. They had privileged duties. And it was the priest that year that was only allowed to go into the very holy presence of God on very rare occasions, one time a year, to perform a specific duty. And now in the New Testament, who's the priest? Any person who's a Christian. Even if you're a woman, even if you're a seven-year-old and you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a priest of Jesus Christ. You now have direct access to the very presence of God. Unbelievable. Selected individually by God as a priest. He knows you. He knows your name. Hey, I should write a song. So you've got the corporate reality, you've got the individuality. And that's all over the New Testament and how believers are described. You've got the body of Christ, Right? We're part of the corporate entity. But you are a member. An important member. Whether it's the mouth, the ear, the finger. So you got the corporate, you got the individual. The, fam- the Bible says we are a family. The church is a family. Family. The corporate entity. But you're a child of God. Individuality. The church is the temple of God, says Peter. But Peter also says you are a stone. A precious stone. Individuality. It's everywhere. So it's a beautiful balance. The corporate reality of salvation, the individual reality of salvation, which sets Christianity apart from every other ideology and religion in the world. They can't get the balance right. They emphasize one over the other. Time and time again. I think Hinduism is all consumed with self. Me. They don't have the balance of the corporate reality. Communism says nothing but the corporate reality. Self doesn't matter. Self is important. Who cares about self? Lose yourself. You have no rights and privileges, as a matter of fact. It's communism. It's a deception. Christianity, corporate and individual, blessed reality. God has made us a kingdom and priests. Man, I just want to shout hallelujah after that. And that's what John does. He says to his God and Father, to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. And then he wraps it up, verses 7 and 8. Behold, now he starts quoting out of Scripture. He takes Daniel 7, Ezekiel 12.10, realities about the coming of Jesus Christ to inaugurate His kingdom, conflates them together, and he says, Behold, wake up, people! Not only wake up, Christian, but you can count on it. This is a reality. Stake your soul on this. Behold, good news. He is coming. Jesus Christ, He is coming. He is coming. That's how the world's going to end. No, that's how the world is going to begin. He is coming. We need to live in light of His coming. Behold, He is 
coming. Notice the present tense. It's a future reality, but it's stated in the present tense. He is literally, He is on His way. Well, that's even more imminent, isn't it? Behold, Jesus, He's on the way. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, huh? Dad's on the way home. Uh-oh. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Even so, Amen. There's rejoicing and there is mourning. Scripture is clear. Revelation is clear. There's rejoicing for the believers who embrace Christ at His coming. There is mourning, gnashing, and weeping for those who have rejected Christ when He returns. There will be much mourning, but also great rejoicing. Jesus Christ is coming. We're going to look more at that as we go through this book. And finally, in verse 8, starting at verse 5, it's all about Jesus. Jesus Himself speaks up and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letter. Alpha and Omega of the Greek alphabet. And that's just referring to totality. I am the beginning and the end. I am totality. I am fullness. I am sovereign. I am in charge. I invented the alphabet. I invented communication. I am the divine Logos. I am the Alpha and the Omega. It says the Lord God. I believe this is Jesus talking. And He calls Himself Lord God. He is called Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come. You know, that's the same thing that God the Father was called in verse 4. You mean Jesus has the same name as God the Father? Yeah. Why? Because He has the same identity and nature as God the Father. They're both eternal beings. They both exist right now and they both will exist continually in the future. So that's also a reference to who Jesus is. Who is, who was, who is to come. And Jesus is the Almighty. He is the Almighty God. This is an an allusion or a reference to Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a son is given and unto us a child is born and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. The Messiah will be God Himself in the flesh. The Mighty One. All-powerful, sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Jesus we know as believers. That is the Jesus we worship. That is the Jesus... We obey. It's awesome. He is the Almighty God. And we have the wonderful, great privilege of going through the next 22 chapters communing with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let's go ahead and pray to Him and thank Him for His great truth. Father, we do thank You for for Your Word, for the Scriptures, for how You had it written down and preserved how you had a faithful church for 2,000 years. Preserve it for us through providence, the Holy Spirit, many Christians literally who gave their life for Scripture. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, for all the copies of my Bible that I own and possess that the early believers did not. Help me and others to be good stewards of the Word of God as you've been so gracious to disseminate it everywhere. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the reminder of who you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty One, and just what a wonderful plan you have allowed your saints to participate in, to be a part of your kingdom, your future reign, to be priests even right now, having direct access to you. Thank you for that great gift. God, may we be blessed by the truth of Revelation, even today, as it molds and forces our thoughts to think heavenly and on you and your glory. Thank you for the great privilege we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.